0: Bruce, welcome back to Karma.
1: Oh, it's lovely to be here.
0: For those who don't know you, your mob, your country?
1: I'm living on Ewan country. We've we got Ewan family, we've got Bunurong family, we've got Tasmanian family. Like a lot of Aboriginal people, we've got people all up and down the coast. We got smashed, our family, and splintered and shovelled off here and shovelled off there, you know, and we're trying to bring as many people together again now as we can.
0: Tell us how you <laughs> grew up and your memories of well, growing up.
1: We always lived in the bush. My father was a travelling man and I knew nothing about the Aboriginal family connection. We knew after I was about nine, you know, people in the town of Mornington where I lived they said, oh look, we actually know who you are, you know, you can't snob us. One lady thought I was snobbing her, you know and uh, she said, you can't snob us, you're bloody family of us and it didn't mean a lot to me until about three weeks later, I thought, what are you talking about, that cranky old lady? She was telling me off, and nine-year-old kids don't like being told off. I've never liked it. Uh, but anyway, things started to fall into place, and then my uncle told me how the connections worked and took me down to Lakes Entrance in Victoria to introduce me to fishermen down there who were Tasmanian. He said, they're your family. You know, they're from Tasmania, but they're your family too. And over a period of time... I started putting it together and then my daughter was five and she started asking questions about family like who's that old lady I didn't even know I just accepted this auntie I didn't know so I thought you know she's not going to stop asking questions this little girl I'd better find out so that was probably 1979 80 and I've been doing it ever since and that's where a lot of the books come from too is that talking to the old people they tell you these incredible stories about your family and you think well Wish I'd known that 20 years ago.
0: You became a teacher. What was the journey into teaching?
1: My sister and I, we would never have been able to go to university because my family didn't have any money. And Dad said to us, look, if you want to keep going with this, you're going to have to do it yourself. Uh, you're going to have to get a scholarship. And Bob Menzies was Prime Minister. He's People think <laughs> of Bob Menzies as a, a you know, real right-winger. But he provided uh, university scholarships for poor families. And my sister and I got one, a, one of them each. It was a real socialist thing that he did, and um, I didn't enjoy university very much. But my sister was pretty good. But anyway, we both became school teachers because that was how we got in. You had to commit yourself to four years of teaching, and but I loved teaching. I loved working with the kids. You know, all poor schools, and uh, when I went to Mallacoota, which was my last real school, um, you know, they're all fishing families, uh, some Aboriginal families. But none of them had two bob to rub together, really. And so we got on like a house on fire and it was just like a family.
0: What subjects were you teaching?
1: I was teaching English. You know, I was a real bookish kid and um, we lived remotely all the time and there was no TV. You know, like people don't believe that, but there was no TV. And so I read books and my grandmothers, both of them, never had to think about buying a present for me. You know, it was always books and that's how I grew up. So. That got me into teaching, and but my ambition was to be a writer, a storyteller, because my family were such good storytellers. That's how our family worked, through story. And I wanted to be as good as them, you know, but they didn't die, you know. They kept on hanging around and wouldn't give me a go. So I started writing stories, and um, I was very proud to be able to publish stories while my aunties and uncles were still alive, and my mum, of course, and my dad, because they thought I was just a ratbag kid, you know, and a bloody long-haired hippie and going nowhere, you know, got a good job in education and then left it, you know, that sort of misery you give your parents. And then they saw it starting to come good. So I'm glad they did see that. I wish they wish they were around now. We'd have had a good time.
0: Starting to learn about your family mm. connections in Tasmania. I mean, that must have been amazing.
1: Well, it is. And politically, Tasmania is a divided country. Um, not just black on white, but um, the various families of Aboriginal people in Tasmania. and um, People expect me to bag Michael Mansell. I'll never bag that man because he introduced me to the idea of Aboriginal sovereignty um, at a time when it was bloody illegal. So I can't forget people like that. And I think down the track we're going to have this conversation. All the Tasmanian Aboriginal families are going to have this conversation That yeah, well, all you mob went to Flinders Island, but our mob stayed on the big island. We might have snuck in on a dairy farm here and a a pig farm there. That's how we stayed, hiding from our colour, really. You can't condemn that. That's how you survived. You know, you've got five kids. How the hell are you going to grow those kids up in Tasmania? where There was a war going on. How are you going to do it? Any way you bloody can, is the answer. You know, I can't condemn my family and I'm certainly not going to condemn anyone else's. I just want us all to come together as a people because we've only got one real enemy and that's white institutions and white history. And the joy about it is, for me, is Australia wants to learn. Suddenly, uh, not the whole of Australia, I don't think Barnaby Joyce is there yet, but a lot of Australians want to know about their country and they are prepared to acknowledge the fact that Aboriginal people were here first. Now, that might sound like something that should have happened 200 years ago. Yes, it is. But it hasn't happened right up until this day.
0: As part of your growth, the journey through academia, I mean, you said you got out of teaching and went to the next level. What was that next level and where did that take you?
1: I was looking for a way where I could write more often because even when I was teaching I was writing at night when the kids were in bed and the house was quiet. That's when I got my writing done. I also went deaf, which made classroom teaching really hard. And this is a time when hearing aids weren't very good. My whole family's deaf, so I knew what was coming. And I had a little bit of a plan in mind, and so... I thought that I would go into book publishing. I started a magazine called Australian Short Stories. I was doing part-time jobs. I started out brick cleaning for the old man, but then I was doing other jobs in education. I'd do a short-term job in education. I'd work in a pub. I'd do anything just to build up a wage so that I could write. I did that for 40 years, and, you know, things are a lot different now. You know, people are reading Dark Emu, so they're reading Convincing Ground, so they're reading Shark. And in a way, I'm pretty glad that that kind of recognition didn't come when I was 30. It's come at a time when I I know what's real and what's not, and what's important in a life and what's not, uh, and for which I'm grateful. It's sort of come at a time in my life when I'm involved in the law, something I never thought would happen, from down south. And... We take our law from a, a boy who survived a massacre in Victoria, the only survivor of that massacre. And that boy was adopted by the man who conducted the massacre. Terrible psychologically for that boy. It must have been terrible, but he a strong mind and he passed on the law to his own son and grandson and we take that law. So it's hanging by a thread because of that lad's life. But now there's 70, 80 young men with law down there. It might be a surprise for people around the Todd to think of that many people with real law not gammon law real law real story following it and absolutely true to our law but that's what it's like and come down come and have a look at our country bring a couple of jumpers with you but come down and have a look and we'll show you our old people's law down there it's alive
0: Walking in two worlds, being in the white mm. feller education mm. system, and then knowing and starting to get a better acceptance from within that you you were part of something much bigger than that. How did that make you feel, and where did you want it to take you?
1: Well, it's very confusing in many ways, living in those two worlds. But you know, the thing that disturbs me most about it is, I often worry, am I the acceptable black feller? You know, I go on ABC radio, TV and all that sort of stuff and I don't want to be the acceptable face of black Australia, someone who people can get along with and don't have to worry about race. Just because I'm pale doesn't mean to say I'm not political. So that is always difficult, you know. Sometimes I, I have to um, hold my law, I stand up for my law and say, well, look, that's not the way to conduct a conversation with Aboriginal Australia. What do you want to do, a, a get-out-of-jail card? I'm not going to give it to you. I can't give it to you. I haven't got the authority to do that, nor would, if I did have the authority, I wouldn't want to do it. Australia has ignored Aboriginal culture and history for 230 years. There's no easy way out. The only way out is to know what this country is about and to respect it. And there's no easy way. It'll be bruising. You know, the conversations we're going to have in the next 20, 30 years will be bruising because, you know, we'll be fighting incomprehension amongst each other. We don't understand you. You don't understand us. But we've got to come to this agreement. Look at Uluru, the Uluru statement. How did Australia react to that? Pathetic. So that's a a bruise on the nose where we come up against each other, black and white, boom. Can't understand each other. Turnbull says, oh, too ambitious. What? What's too ambitious about that statement? It's a statement about love for country. There's no request in it. The only request is know your country, know your history. Surely, you know, that's something you'd want to do. Anyway, we're going to have those collisions with each other and there's no easy way of doing it. We have to do it the hard way, but not to do it. will condemn this nation to idiocy like you see in the United States today. who can't even consider that First Nation people are the people of that land.
0: Bruce, going back to the 70s, when the political movement became alive again, what was your understanding of the Tend Embassy in Canberra? I mean, what was going on around the country up in Queensland with Joe yeah. Jockey Peterson? I mean, yeah. how, how were you sitting at that stage?
1: Well, I was ignorant. But like I said about Michael Mansell, the ten Embassy had the same impact on me, uh, because it told me that you had to be political. You couldn't just be hiding in the grass. You had to stand up. So both of those events were crucial to me. And uh, from that point on, I was getting involved. And I was going around the elders, asking them all sorts of questions. And they were saying, well, we can't answer that question because you're too ignorant. So there was you know, 20 years of learning going on there. I think of William Cooper in the Second World War, who took the side of Jewish people because he knew it was just. You know, that's the kind of influence that just stunned me, you know how could one man, when the rest of Australia was just cruising along, allowing Germany to do its thing, and one black man stands up and says that's not right. He was the conscience of Australia, and people like William Cooper were involved in our early independence movements and things like that, such a gr- you know great leader of people, Doug Nichols, all those people, faith bandler though all such magnificent people and I knew them all, and now I'm working on our farm at the moment. Some lads are helping me build some gardens down there for these native foods, you know, so-called native foods. And and one of them's related to William Cooper, you know. I love that. I love it that a relative of William Cooper is a relative of old man Palmer are working together again.
0: When you wrote the book, The Dark Emu, did you think it would achieve what it did?
1: Yeah, I did. I actually knew that because when I was researching it, and um, I was coming up with all these things of crops being sown in the Northern Territory, South Australian border area, Queensland, New South Wales area, Victoria, Tasmania, Western Australia, all over the place. And I was talking to people about it and I said, did you, do you know that this was happening? And people were just astounded by it. And then I was taken aside by some professors from ANU and, um, you know, they virtually patted me on the head like a little black boy and said, oh, look, Bruce, you know, we know you're enthusiastic. You know, we know you're an Aboriginal person, um, but you can't tell lies to our students. And that was just a red rag to a bull. And I left that meeting and I thought, all right, gloves are off now. We're going to really talk Turkey. But I knew that the only way I could tell that story was through the authorities that they recognised. Of, of australian history and they were the explorers if i couldn't find a quote from an australian explorer they wouldn't believe the word of a black person you know that that's been the classic case our opinion was never taken in into court of law it was illegal to accept the word of a black man for so long and it, the same in history you can't take the word of a black man and so i said all right because I'd, I'd already seen some of this evidence in the explorers' journals, I said, "Right, I'm going to trawl the library." I'm just, so I spent five years in libraries, going through all the white notes, and there's just so much information about what our, our people were doing there. And I knew before the book came out, it was going to go well, and it would surprise Australia, but Australia, it seemed to me, were just about ready. There was a new mood in the country, and I thought, uh, this is going to go well. I said to Mugabala, a fabulous publishing house from Broome, I said to him, listen mate, you know, this is going to go, so you better print a lot, because it'll take off. I knew it would, but they printed 2,000, and of course, they they went really quickly, and it, you know, it's now selling 5,000 a month, five years later, so I wasn't at all surprised, but with the money that I've made out of that, I've been able to employ people on the farm um, and we can talk culture, we do culture, we work on preparing these crops and seedling areas. At night we go fishing, you know, like it's, it's we're following our cultural path as well as doing hard work.
0: Bill Gamage wrote uh, in a book that, you know, obviously initially Bill's story was uh, um, accepted perhaps a little bit more than yours, uh, you know, because he was a white academic and he obviously knew what he was talking about. But uh, <laughs> you know, as you've said, for the uh, little black mm. boy to to mm. come up with a, a mm. an accusation that sort of dispelled the uh, mm. white colonial history, uh, it's taken. Um, some time for people to really look at what you wrote in the book and to verify it and then to start thinking about well how do we rewrite Australian history and and I think that's maybe the next part of your journey.
1: We're working on a a two-part series for Dark Emu now so that'll take care of this year but I'm, I'm a novelist really just a straight storyteller so I've got a novel and a collection of stories coming out this year but it's kind of inevitable that I'll end up writing more history and what the, the intriguing thing for me is, how did this come about? How did it happen that a group of people could come to Australia, completely rewrite the history of the land, and then tell everyone else that it was true? And Australia swallowed it like a sardine, you know? Bang, down the gullet, gone. You know, we accept that. And everyone as ever since. So what was in the brains of the Europeans that made them think they could get away with that and made them think that it was right. So the next book I'm writing, and I've written a couple of chapters, is called The European Mind because they they didn't just do it to us. They did it to Asia, they did it to America, they did it to the islands. So what was going on in their brain that made them leave their own country and decide to take everyone else's by force? What was in their brain? Because it's a Christian ethic too. You know, I know a lot of our people are Christians, but the Christian church supported that idea that the Europeans were the pinnacle of human development and everything else would have to fall in front of it like a field of wheat. And yet our people here had a system of cross-continental government that ought to be the envy of the world because we conducted ourselves not without anger, not without bad temper, not without punishments and things like that, but we did it without war for land. That's the first in human development. So as Lebanon and Israel and Palestine and all of those countries, on whatever continent it is, can't conduct their business without land war, here's a land that did it. You know, the land and the people absorbed that history out of the land. And so it has to be a commodity that is valued higher than gold. In the world, how can you conduct human affairs in peace? And I'm just astounded that we never talked about it in this country. Our people have, old people have, you know. Our people have said we've always been here, you know. And our people said, "Well, this is our land here, you know. I'm only responsible for this land here, not that land over there." You know. How does the kind of intellectual rigor to create a system like that? It's phenomenal, and it's, it's unique.
0: This European concept of, of privilege and everything that they do, they do better than mm. anyone else. Um, as you said, it's not just Australia, but... Australia is what we're concerned about and our children and their children will be concerned about. So you drafted a letter to Andrew Bolt, an article that I read, and you were questioning about having a beer with him. And (laughs) um, with the likes of Andrew Bolt and the other shock jocks of this nation, I mean, some Mm. have been there a very long time, Mm. uh, spinning their their webs of, of of hate and anger yeah. against First Nations. Ray speak. Hadley and people like that. But getting to the point where Aboriginal people can fight that on an equal level will obviously take some time. Yeah.
1: I'm proud of the fact that I think Dark Emu allows some Aboriginal people to fight back on equal footing with academics. You know, instead of being patted on the head by academics who come in and say, Oh, we're going to study you um, we're not going to pay anybody and we'll take the results away later on and you won't be able to access them again. Um, those days are gone now because our people can say, well, hang on, actually, we were the agriculturalists in this country. Now, you listen to us. You know, We were doing this, the first people in the world to make bread, you know the first people in the world to make a law without war. Now, you listen to us. So we want to be on the board. We want to be the people helping to decide the water policy for the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, for the, all the river systems in the Territory, WA, Queensland. You know, we've actually got some pretty good ideas about this um, because when we had the rivers, they had water in them. Can't always say that about the Todd, but we've actually got good land management practices which we can teach non-Aboriginal Australia. And I think that's a very different conversation And I'm proud to have been involved in that conversation because I can see it working down south where people are starting to say, well, we don't want to be pushed around by you, Mob, with your presumed superiority. We've got our superiority and it's called Australia.
0: You touched earlier on Uluru's statement from the heart and the message behind that statement, but more importantly the fact that Aboriginal people from across the nation came together to discuss and debate what was going to go in that. Mm. And uh, and it was quite a a lengthy involved process that involved elders, academics, people from all over the country to put something together that was a a genuine attempt Mm. to... Start healing this country. Yeah, um, but again, we saw the reaction, and I think mm. what the response did was was signal where this country still is, and we still have a long way to go. Yeah. So, your children and and your children's children, it's going to take some time before we this country gets to the point where the First Nations are at the table.
1: Yeah. It's sad to to say that and know that it's true, that it will take a long time. But I think the process has started. And look, look at the way the Uluru Statement worked. You know, people from all over the country, and it wasn't conducted uh, without anger, and it wasn't conducted without some people spitting the dummy, um, but a statement emerged and there was no blood. You know, that's the thing. That's the thing that people should look at. And the conversation about it now is that we all did this. You know, we all came up with this statement. We may not agree with every section of it, but we're not backstabbing each other in Parliament House now about it. We believe in the statement. And that's the law uh, that people should see as solid for the, the country's future. That model of patience and concentration and consideration, I think it's a really good model for political affairs because our old people had perfected it. You think, We now know absolutely that Aboriginal people have been in this country for 100,000 years. Our people say all the time, and science is starting to prove that. But if you have a system of government, and the young people of that nation re-adopt that system every generation, generation after generation after generation, they can see that it's so fair. Everybody gets a house, everybody gets fed, Everybody gets looked after by the young. Everybody takes part in the culture. Not just Nicole Kidman. Everybody's in the culture. And that's so fair. But it's also, that's where the law comes from. Everyone's in the culture. Everyone believes in the culture. Everyone supports the culture. It's not a culture of elites. It's a a culture founded in the people. That's a very powerful thing. And that that is why it kept on being reinvented by the young. It can be again.
0: When we look at... um Again, the wider perception of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and culture in this day and age. I suppose the conundrum to understand is that people can still be living remotely with a culture that has kept them there for thousands of years and maintaining it alongside Western civilization and still be able to walk into worlds but wanting to maintain their culture and not mm. be overtaken by mm. Western culture, mm. as we've seen with you know in down in Victoria and New South Wales, they weren't given a choice. Um, it was taken away from them. Mm. Fortunately, Northern Territory, WA and Far North Queensland, it's remote enough still for people to maintain the lifestyle they want, even though there's still mm. government pressure to want to remove people from a lifestyle choice and yeah. get them into, into regional centres.
1: Yeah, that pressure is um, really on, but our young people have to resist it and um, do the hard work. You know, I was down in Tasmania for Manila Day. um Auntie Patsy Cameron um, invited me down there. I hadn't been able to go to the first two, but I got down there last year. And I, I, what I impressed me was the young people. The young people taking part in their culture, um, putting on the ochre, doing the dance. But then at the very end of the day, um, at the end of a very long day of celebrations, it was the young people cleaning up. Mm. And I thought, you you mob, you actually believe in your law. You're not here just to do a dance for the, the people, you know, take your 50 bucks and go home because no one got paid anyway. Um, they were there to support their culture. And I was so impressed. I see the same everywhere I go. Young Aboriginal people uh, adopting the law, being respectful of the elders and being so determined. And now, I think, in some respects, um, better equipped to um, contest uh, the opinion in the country uh, because we've got lawyers, we've got doctors, you know, we've got writers and filmmakers, you know, Warwick Thornton and people like that are telling the story for us you know, we don't need a map by Warwick, who would have thought? In the old days when Warwick made Greenbush and then um, you come up with a, a totally political statement like we don't need a map and you know that the country is under barrage from black opinion now.
0: Just one final question, Bruce. Um, again, as someone who's who's walked in two worlds, what is it about Aboriginal law from your own personal understanding of, of having mm. walked both walked in, in, in both worlds, why is it superior? How do you try and explain that to the average yeah. Aussie who yeah. doesn't have a clue?
1: Well it's superior because it doesn't even try to be superior. You know, it's saying that the the center of the law is Mother Earth. Um, that what people do is neither here nor there. It's the earth itself which is important. And what we learn in law is that she's the boss, and we have to look after her. We have law camp several times a year, but the big one usually in March this year going to be in September. they're really important times for me because I see the young men grow. I mm. see them enter the law as shy young men, not sure whether they really want to put the clay on and you know wear the red and all that sort of thing and until in the end, it's clicked in their mind and they they realise they're doing something really ancient Mm. but they're modern men and, you know, they, they turn the keys on their car at the end of the 12 days and they enter that other world and they go in as stronger educators, stronger builders, stronger nurses, stronger doctors, stronger men and women and they're stronger to their own children and that is the most important thing is that they're strong to their own children. We had a, a short law camp to do a specific task up in the Snowy Mountains, and I saw one of my brothers there with his two children, and they were all painted up. Mm. And not a lot of education happened in that family, but I could see that those two kids were going to be so well-versed in Australian history that they were going to be top of their class. They are only, you know, seven and eight, but I thought... You two young fellas, you don't know it now because you're bouncing around in the grass and that. Um, you think we're playing a game. But when history comes up in your classroom again, you're going to know it. You're, you're going to be the boss. And you're going to stand up there and say to your teacher, well, hang on, Captain Cook didn't discover Australia.